reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. And we looked at footnote 32 last time. uh, And so we're going to look at 33 this time. So particularly the last sentence here, which is that he has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. And we've got a few in Hebrews there. Who wants to read Hebrews 9.14? Do we have a volunteer for that? Hebrews 9.14. Kenan, who wants to take Hebrews 10.14? Tim, and Romans 3.25 and 26. I heard a yep. Keith, okay. Okay, let's look at those. Hebrews 9.14. Perfect. Okay, thank you. So we see progress and advance there, right? What was once typological, heifers, goats, now becomes the actual substance in Christ. Hebrews 10. Okay, so a single offering... He has perfected for all those, all time, those who are being sanctified. And this might be a good place to take a little bit of an off-ramp here. Uh, And I think probably we've discussed this before, so I won't belabor it. But I'm going to ask for an artistic observation. If you walk in to a Protestant or Evangelical church, and you look at the cross, or you go look in a Roman Catholic church at a cross. What is the difference? That's right. Does anyone notice that? In a Catholic church, Christ is still on the cross. What does that mean? Is that just an artistic decision, or is it an artistic decision with a purpose? So do Roman Catholics deny the resurrection? No, they don't. They believe in a resurrected Christ like we do, but Christ is still suffering. Right? Roman Catholics are very, very, very strong on a theology of suffering, which within certain bounds isn't bad. The Bible does teach about suffering. But what happens, if you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, what's happening when you take the Mass at a Roman Catholic church? The bread turns physically into his body, right? It's not symbolizing the body. It is the body. Yeah. And what happens to the wine? It converts to blood. Yep. Okay. And in most Catholic churches, do the congregants even get the wine? the blood. They don't. Why? 
in case you spill it. Yep. Christ's blood is too precious to waste. And in serving it, something might spill. Okay? Uh, there are some Catholic churches that do serve wine, but the vast majority through history do not for that purpose. And if you go up front, who puts the wafer in your mouth? The priest does. Okay? The priest does. Because in the Mass, the theology of the Roman Catholic Mass, and this is an important point of history <clears throat> for several reasons. Christ is interceding in a way that his suffering is perpetual in Roman Catholic theology. Um, again, they do affirm the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's not up for question. They do affirm that. Um, but they see the Mass as an ongoing sacrifice, a perpetual sacrifice. So every week, Christ is being sacrificed in perpetuity until, uh, until his return at the end. And that's why... Uh, Christ is symbolized still on the cross because it's, it's an ongoing propitiation. They really don't emphasize what, what we just read here is that for a single offering he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. We would emphasize the once for all aspect which is why we have an empty cross. And that's also why when we serve communion... Uh, we want to do it reverently. We want to do it understanding what we're doing, thinking about the symbols. But where's, where's the communion table when we do it? Or in most, perhaps all Protestant and evangelical churches. Where's the communion table? Off to the side, or maybe lower down beneath the pulpit. Where's the pulpit? In the center. Because what's the most important thing in an evangelical church service? This has to be central. This has to be central. And pulpit architecture in the Reformation was beautiful. If you go to St. Pierre's Church, where Calvin was pastor, uh, in Geneva, there's a winding staircase up a pillar, and the pulpit is up on a pillar, drawing attention not to John Calvin, but to the Word of God. Okay? And that was common in, in medieval Protestant architecture. We're drawing attention to the word because the preaching of the word of God is the most important thing that happens. Yes, communion is important, but we're going to put it off to the side. Now, let's walk back into our Roman Catholic Church. Where's the pulpit? In the corner. What's up front and center? What's the most important thing we're going to do here on Sunday morning? Take the Eucharist. Take the Eucharist is the most important thing we're going to do this morning. So there's a 20-minute homily symbolized by the fact that the pulpit is off to the corner. But what's really going to matter here this morning is that everybody gets the Eucharist. You have to be fed by the body and blood. Okay? And that's why the altar is central, or tends to be central. Okay? Um, and so when we look at something like, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified... Don't just read over that because you're familiar with that. Architectural decisions are made on this. Okay? Artistic depictions that impact history are impacted by a verse like this. For all time. And again, so when we get to the question of suicide, for once for all, all future sins are forgiven if you are in Christ. Okay? Repentance isn't so much about cataloging every sin 
And I said this, I think, last week, and it wasn't meant to be a throwaway comment. Christ did not just die for your sins. He died for your sin. What's the difference? This, one's in nature, one's in action. But the actions display what's in here. Right? Christ died for the septic tank that is my heart. He died for sin. The sins are just the symptoms above the ground. And yes, they are forgiven by the atonement. But what's really important is that Christ died for sin. And as a result, our sins are also forgiven. But when Christ died, every sin committed by every person in this room was future and fully atoned for. So let's not forget that future grace. Alfred and then Don. You want to do some philosophy? Uh, Basically, Aristotle, um, and then Thomas Aquinas. So Muslims, at one point in time, were known as intellectually vastly superior to Christianity. They had done tremendous retrieval work with Aristotle. They had a philosopher named Averroes, who took Greek philosophy and made it work with Islam. And so there was a time in Europe, if you were an intelligent person, Islam was for you and Christianity was not. And Rome essentially decided, well, we can do that too. Here's our brightest scholar, a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas, you are an absolute genius, and Thomas was an absolute genius. And there's much about Thomas that everyone in this room should appreciate. Uh, He was tasked with Christianize Aristotle... (laughs) And Aristotle had a philosophy about what's called forms and accidents and how things can be what they don't look like and so forth. Uh, And he baptized Aristotle's philosophy into Christianity. And so you can do things now like the substance of a thing doesn't necessarily match its form. So in the Mass, the miracle, you take wine made out of grapes and it's just wine. And when the priest says, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, this is my blood, it actually, what's called transubstantiation, trans just means across, right? Transgender, trans-Canada highway. So it transubstantiates. The substance transfers from one thing to another. So two miracles are happening. He holds the cup up, or the bread, hoc est corpus meum. By the way, who's been to a magic trick with little kids? And they say, hocus pocus? That's where that comes from, actually. Hocus corpus me. It comes from the Latin mass. Um, he holds it up and a miracle happens, which is that the substance has changed. The substance has changed. Um, and a second miracle happens. It still tastes like wine and looks and smells like wine. So two miracles just happened. Okay? And the same with the bread. A miracle happens. It becomes the physical body of Christ. But a second miracle also happened is that it tastes and looks like bread, like a wafer. So it's, this is what happens when you put theology behind philosophy. And this is a perennial temptation. And it, it always happens in little bits, right? Rome didn't just wake up one morning and become what we see today. This takes centuries of kind of <laughs> speculating and then adding another philosopher and, then, and, and so forth. And so we... We need to make sure that philosophy is seen as a valid tool, but in the service of theology. 
Right? Theology is the queen of the sciences, and everything else must bend their knee to the queen. Um, and there's more that could be said. But basically, it's, it's philosophy first, and then bringing the Bible under philosophy. And by saying that, Thomas Aquinas is a brilliant man, and probably 75% of what he did we should appreciate. But he really went off on a tangent on some things. Don. The value of, of our confession. The value of David's confession, our sin, that he died for that, that it is so important that we say we're forgiven. Right. So let's go to Psalm 51. Okay. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Sees a lovely woman, decides to take her, covers it up by killing her husband, who is so loyal to the king that he won't go home. And David finally sees to it that he gets abandoned in battle to make sure he dies. Okay? And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about a little lamb. Does everyone remember the story? Yeah? Right? And this rich man steals the poor man's little lamb. And David is so angry, he says, tell me who it is so I can kill him. And Nathan says, you are the man. All Uriah had was his wife that he loved. You are the king of thousands, wealthy. And you took all that this man had. You're the man, David. David's tore up, takes his pen... And he writes this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Did Jesus Christ die for the sins of his grandfather David? 
Yes, he did. Did David commit his sin as a justified man? Yes, he did. Was David a happy man as he was sinning and betraying his master? He was not. Did David have joy? Was the sexual fling worth it? No. No, it ruined this man. Then he watches his little baby die. This is not fun. This is terrifying stuff. Yes, he's a justified man. But this is what happens when we sin. Joy vanishes. Assurance vanishes. It's gone. It doesn't mean that justification's not there, but it means all our joy is gone. Because we're betraying our master. And so what David, what does he say? A broken and a contrite spirit is what God rejoices in. Okay? That's what confession does. Acknowledging. This is what God wants. A broken and contrite heart. I acknowledge I've sinned. And then he says, restore to me the fact of my justification because I sinned. I lost justification. And now I need to be re-justified. Right? No. No, what does he say? The joy of my salvation. The joy of it. Well, he... Apply to him from God. Yes. Yeah, and mine maybe does too. I've got the word your? Okay. Then, then I do. But it's the same thing. It's salvation from God applied to David. Right? Uh, and the justification didn't vanish in that time, but the joy did. The assurance did. The peace did. Walking with God vanished. Okay? That's... That is the purpose of daily confession, is to keep short accounts, to keep our hearts glad, to keep reminding ourselves that what God delights in is a broken and contrite heart. So we do this for our assurance. We do it for our joy. And it doesn't seem joyful to acknowledge our sins to a holy God. Right? It's embarrassing. And it's, it's often struck me, I'd like to hear thoughts on this, Repentance is the most bizarre thing because how easy is it to do? I know I've sinned. The person I've sinned against knows I've sinned. God knows I've sinned. Half a dozen people around me know I've sinned. Why is it so hard to just without excuse say I sinned? Why is that so hard? Nobody's going to be surprised because everybody knows it. Why is it so hard to just say, I'm sorry, I sinned? We have proud hearts. Yep. But it's, it, simultaneously, it's the, what is easier than just saying something that everybody knows is true? This should be easy, easy, easy stuff. Repentance should be the easiest thing we do. We're sinners who need forgiveness. It's easy. <laughs> I, I just heard a story uh, this last week from a pastor by the name of Toby Sumter who said he was kind of in charge of a, a classical Christian school and there was a discipline case with one kid and, and it probably didn't handle it well. And so he called the mom to apologize for the way that this case had been handled. But he didn't want to apologize all the way because it looked too bad on him. So he kind of did a halfway apology covering up about half of the information. 
And then he thought, okay, good, I apologized. I got that off my chest. And immediately the wheel started turning again. I lied to her. So he had to call her a second time (laughs) to confess the lie that was buried in the confession for the first lie. This is, like, we, why do we insist on making the, and I, I'm not saying that to slam him, because that's all of us. Why? Why do we make this so hard? Why do we make it so hard? Why do we deny things that are patently obvious to everyone? When the offer of forgiveness and peace and joy is just right there, just for, just for being honest. And I think Lisa's right, we are proud. Has anyone else noticed that in your own life or the life of others? <laughs> that, that this should be so easy and yet it's so hard to do it? And you still want to stay mad about it for a little bit longer? Yeah. <laughs> Feels really good to foster anger for a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I've heard from other people. Yeah. Jolene. Yeah, I've been told I should repeat. We have people that watch on this. So what Val's comment was, if you didn't hear it, was that sometimes saying I'm sorry is actually relatively easy, but the heart change that needs to accompany it is the hard part. And Jolene just followed that up by saying often situations are complicated and complex, and so usually there's more than one sinner involved in our situations. And so we tend to justify our own sin by pointing out how the other person has also sinned. Right? But that's not real repentance either. We can't repent for their sin. I'm responsible for my part of this tangle, right? Sucks, doesn't it? Because Caitlin, as far as I know, is a pretty sweet person. For you to... (laughs) Yeah, and it hurts to be confronted that there's all kinds of junk in your heart, right? Yeah. No, that's right. It's tough. It's tough. But this is what's commanded of us if we want to be joy-filled Christians. And on the point of shame that Caitlin just mentioned... Oh, sorry. Hugh.
And that's a fair point. So if you didn't hear it, Hugh just mentioned to us these sins as Bible-believing Christians may be obvious, but there's so many sins that are treated like virtues in our society that perhaps that sense of shame and guilt isn't there for some people, right? Um, what's that? Or the shame is misplaced. It's put on virtuous things, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's a fair point too. Sometimes we shame virtuous things, right? Like you should almost be ashamed. Um, I remember when Tanya and me were about to get married, then a relative told me I was far too young and, and inexperienced uh, and I wouldn't even buy a truck without taking it on a test drive. It's like, right, I'm not buying a truck. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting married, right? But it was almost like you should feel embarrassed for not going along with all this culturally accepted sin in our culture, right? So you, I think that's what you mean. The shame is put on the wrong thing, yeah, on virtuous things. Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, Hugh talks about, you know, fat shaming and all, all the shaming that happens in our culture. And the message is that all shame is wrong, right? Typically. So we want to remove all taboos. All shame is bad. Is all shame bad? No. Nope. You know, guys, in the olden days, you had to risk being caught in public to find pornography. There was shame attached to it. And that was good. That is good shame. Someone you know might walk into 7-Eleven when you're about to make a compromise. And the fact that that might happen is good. That's a strong deterrent from sin. Shame is good. Okay? Uh, Sexual sin is, is what our society is sick with. Uh, the most shameful, degrading sexual acts, according to Scripture, are going to be celebrated all next month. And we're all going to be sick of every sports team and every bank and every corporation changing their logo to the colors of the rainbow. Right? And that's called pride. The Bible says this is a a corrupting lust, a degrading lust, okay? And, and we're going to say that that's pride. I would say it's good when there's shame on those things. Was it happening in Victorian England? Yes, of course it was, but it was underground. And that's the point. That's the point. It should be underground. It is shameful. Children don't need to be aware of this. Shameful things should be pushed underground. Well, if you legalize, if you criminalize, it's just going to go underground. Yes, correct. That's not an argument against my position. That's what I want to accomplish. Yes, I want abortion underground. Yes, I want sodomy underground. Can we stop it? Probably not completely. Could we stop a lot of it by putting shame around it? Yes, I bet we could. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with pushing things underground if they still exist. That's the point. They're underground. They're not corrupting public morals. And that's good. Dave. Oh, Dave the Libertarian's coming out.
No, and that's an important point. Yeah, so Dave's just saying we never... If you grew up in the time before me and Dave, or Dave and me probably got to the tail end of it, if you were born in the 70s, where you could more or less trust that the government would legislate morally, and we can't trust that anymore, right? And, and if the standard is, well, that's what the law says, so it must be good, clearly we're on the wrong path now, right? There is a law above the law, and that's God's law. That's right. And, and I think Dave also makes an important point that we don't cede words and ideas to the state, right, or, or to the spirit of the age. I was surprised the last couple of years, I saw, you know, some of my very conservative Christian friends all of a sudden on Facebook, they've got a rainbow avatar. I'm like, what? And then I click, I support the Noahic covenant, <laughs> right? And you see all these people drowning and pounding at the door. Say, so, okay, yeah, <laughs> fair. So they're repurposing the rainbow, right? Ken Ham has actually done that at the Creation Museum, right? He's got a rainbow uh, light up against the ark. He's repurposing it because the rainbow is ours. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't say repurposing because that's the original intent. Yeah, was a sign of peace. Yeah, Keith, and then Hugh. And that's an important point because the Christian state to the civil law is a big topic. But Keith just pointed out that when pastors go talk to people about things that are immoral, like abortion, one of the first defenses is, well, it's legal, so it must be moral. But that's an interesting point because we tend to think, again, especially the kind of separatist or escapist Christianity that has been predominant for the last 50 to 100 years in North America has said, well, you can't legislate morality, so we're just going to forget about that whole world. Okay. What is every single law that has ever, is now, or will ever be on the books? A statement on morality. (laughs) Not only can you legislate morality, that's all any law is is imposed morality. And it's either going to be true or false morality. Okay? But there is a concept, there is an idea, there is a taskmaster behind every law on the books. This is necessarily so. There's a worldview behind it. And if it's not a Christian worldview behind those laws, it will be some form of paganism. This is inescapable. All law is religious in nature. So... To say you can't legislate morality, firstly, just on the face, is false. Because whoever says that has some laws that they like and some laws that they don't like on the basis of their morality. Okay? Every law is a moral statement. And I think as Christians, we tend to lose the fact that laws are a teacher. Laws do teach. Let's do a thought experiment. Assuming we all want laws against rape. Okay? Let's assume we all want that. Because that's a moral statement. And if the penalty for rape was a $20 fine, would that law be making a statement about value? Yeah, it sure would. It says a girl's worth about 20 bucks. Okay? 
if murder came with a $100 fine? What are you learning? Life is worth about 100 bucks. The very last capital crime, and I remember this. I was in high school when Canada got rid of its last capital crime. Does anyone remember what that was? Treason against the state. 1998, Canada got rid of capital punishment once and for all. Treason against the state was the last capital crime. There was a time in this country where sodomy was a capital crime. Now we celebrate it. Okay? A value is being made and it's teaching people. What's the most serious crime that Canadians decided you could lose your life for? Treason against the state. What are you learning? Here's the state. Here's the family. And a generation of people my age grew up learning that the state is what organizes. That's who you are. Canada defines who you are. America defines who you are. And in the big Canada, that's the largest nesting doll. Inside there, you'd have your province. And then a little further in, you might have your community, then your municipality, and then maybe your church, and then your family, and then you're the smallest nesting doll in the middle. But the biggest nesting doll that holds it all together is the state. That's not, that's not a biblical vision whatsoever. The state is important in the Bible. But the state's over here, the family's over here, the church is over here, your vocation's over here. There's overlapping, think of it like a Venn diagram of overlapping circles. But no one of them can claim absolute right over anything else because God didn't make the world that way. Okay? This will probably never happen in our lifetime, but it could happen if we swallow some of these statist assumptions that the state will assume rights over your family gatherings or who you can have at your house or whether you're allowed to go to church or not. Probably never happen. <laughs> but it may. Okay? We may get so sick at some point in the distant future that we won't know what marriage is. Or we might even come up with something like no-fault divorce. Right? And of course I say that tongue-in-cheek because all these things are already memories for us. Because of bad assumptions. Unbiblical assumptions. Hugh. My thought is I agree with the Gospel of John. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Hugh makes a very important point, is do not judge has become probably most North Americans' only Bible verse, right? And then they highlight the rest of their Bible with a black marker, <laughs> right? But John, Matthew 7, verse 1 is apparently a summation of Christianity. Don't judge. But if Jesus is saying judge with right judgment, do not judge isn't an absolute statement. It's, you can't see what's in their heart. But judge the right judgment. This is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. This is right. Um, and shame hurts. Do you think David felt shame in writing Psalm 51? I'm sure he felt deeply shameful. But shame is a grace. That's what I want to say. Shame is a grace from God. If you, sh- if you feel ashamed of your sin, that is God's kindness to you. That's what leads to repentance. Okay? God disciplines us like sons and daughters. And a loving father doesn't let his child just go down an undisciplined route. Okay? The shame is a gift. Tim Bailey has written a book. Maybe as a church we should all read this book for June. It's called The Grace of Shame. In fact, write that down. It's a great book. Uh, And it talks largely about sexualization of of culture and and the removal of shame. And it's a very helpful book. If you're actually interested in looking at it, his last name is spelled B-A-Y-L-Y. And he is the son of Joe Bailey, which maybe some of you know he used to run with Billy Graham. Um, His dad was a popular evangelist. um, So Tim Bailey, The Grace of Shame, uh, and he just catalogs through. Shame is a, it's a useful tool if we put it on the right things, right? If the right things are seen as shameful, right? Like drunkenness, like sexual sin, like the love of money, like what, you know, you name it. Um, whatever your particular sin is, if you feel ashamed and embarrassed by it so that you get really defensive when people confront you on it, that's good. That's good because that's what happens to David, Right? Tell me who this guy is. I'm going to go kill him. Okay. Good. I'm glad you know that, David. Now I'm, I'm here to tell you the uncomfortable fact that it's you. Right? It, it's a gift from God. That's how we got Psalm 51 into our Bible. So shame is, shame is a, can be a gift of grace. Yeah, Karamei. Okay, so you're, Karame's asking, someone that comes to Christ, but they don't see certain sins in their life, and they're not ready to go to work on it. Yeah, those are tricky situations, because you want to somehow point out that you are on a destructive path, this is a sin. Um, Yeah, and I sometimes wonder, what if God showed us all our sin at once? 
I think we would just give up. Right? It, it might be good that we only see it in stages. Right? Because if we had to see everything at once, I think it would be overwhelming. I don't know. I, I'm not sure there's a one-size-fits-all answer for that. I, one very gracious example of that in my life has been my father-in-law, who is one of the kindest, gentlest men that I know. And he'll often talk when he's been teaching me. I've learned how he plays this game. When he's telling me something, he never tells me. He talks about how God has worked in his life in the area that I clearly need to work on. And he just leaves it there. And evidently trusts that the Holy Spirit is going to drive that into my heart. And all the times that I'm aware of, he does. I've probably missed about 80% of them. (laughs) But when I've been aware of what he's doing, it's been a very effective tool. Maybe that's not a one-size-fits-all either. I don't know. His character is very gentle and non-confrontational. Um, so that's the way he does it. For me, that's been very effective. Maybe you can share how the Lord's worked in your life in a particular sin. Sometimes it's at a point where I do think it is time to just tell you know, someone, and this would be probably a bit more of a masculine thing, you need to quit being an idiot. <laughs> You're being an idiot, and it's going to cost you everything. So smarten up. I think there is a place for that. I think if that's the only tool in the toolbox, that's not going to go very far. I think it's just, is the person open to talking about it or not? If you kind of try a side road, say how God's been convicting you of that sin in your life, maybe that's, maybe that's a way to go. I, I don't know. What's worked in other people's experience? Elf. No, it's good. Jolin's, uh, Jolin's dad is my father-in-law's brother. And I think he also worked with the same system. One family gathering, Tanya and me were newly married. I don't even remember what it was. But he kind of winked at me. And then he said, that's twice you've done that now. Are you thinking about that? And I don't even remember what it was, what I said. But it stuck. <laughs> Uncle Leonard taught me something. I'll agree with it if it's a Bible verse.
that's good. I don't know what there is to add to that. I mean, these things are spiritually discerned, right? To, to force somebody to see something, if they have an unregenerate heart, to work at external morality isn't, they won't see it. Doesn't mean you can't say anything, but they won't, don't be surprised if they don't see it. Uh, what's that? You might be, and that doesn't mean it's not worth the confrontation, maybe. Yeah. Nope, that's good. And that's maybe a good, good place to close it. Uh, and we have to remember that as Christians. We, I struggle a lot with thinking if we just had the right information and people had the right information, or maybe if I'd explain it this way, and I don't know how many times Tanya has said, they're not going to catch on. Just give up. No, but like, it's so obvious. If, if I, maybe if I explain it this way, maybe if I use this picture, they'll catch, no, Matt, they're not going to catch on. Just Quit wasting yourself on it. And she's usually right. But I always work with the assumption, this is so obvious, you have to <laughs> look at it, see it. And some people just laugh their way through it. And, uh, No, and that's good. And it, it eventually it gets to the place where, you know, throwing pearls before swine. Well, what does that mean? If someone's just laughing their way through life and they don't care. If they've, if they've surrounded themselves with fools and that's what they're listening to and our culture is foolish. If they think there's wisdom in that, eventually you've got to just say, Lord, grab a hold of, you know, grab a hold of her because I'm not getting anywhere. And, and that is ultimately the Holy Spirit's work. He might use us as tools, but that for, for me, the lesson is I can't make people see it as frustrating as that is for me. And maybe that's frustrating for others as well, but that the Holy Spirit does have to get a hold of people eventually. Yeah, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the way you instruct us. I want to thank you for this discussion. Lord, and I also want to thank you for the place of shame in the Christian life. Lord, I pray that we would not run from shame, but that when you walk us through shameful chapters, when we find things that we've done that are embarrassing and shameful, I pray that we would not grow calloused or cover it up or turn it into something light. Lord, but I pray that by your spirit, you would convict us of those areas, soften our hearts, get through that your spirit would show us the things in our lives that, uh, that need repentance, that need work if we're going to have peace with you and if we're going to have lasting joy. Lord, and we are surrounded in a world of fools, both in and out of the church. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help all of us to not take counsel with scoffers, to not listen to the foolishness that's so freely offered, but that we would trust in the wisdom of your word. 
Lord, I pray for each one here. Convict us with your word. Help us to see uh, even the socially acceptable sins in our own life, even the sins that are acceptable in the church. Lord, help us to, to see those things. Pray that each person here uh, would be enlightened to those things and that by your spirit we would get to work killing those sins, that we would walk in joy, that we would walk in peace with you. Commit each person here this morning and we commit the rest of our morning to you, to your fatherly hands. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.